0: The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay. Okay. Welcome. Welcome to the uh, second uh, discussion of networks and the second to last talk of a uh, lecture of this course. There's a very important uh, set of uh, lectures after that from the students I'm looking forward to. So last time we talked about the uh, mot- use of computers to model various complicated systems in, in uh, mainly cellular systems uh, ranging from hi- uh, highly cooperative, even bistable bifurcations that sort of where a cell makes a decision, uh, a discussion of chromosome copy number and its implications, and uh, a large uh, chunk of time on flux balance optimization where we can look at, at uh, many of these things from the standpoint of optimization. Now, today, uh, to uh, paraphrase a, a famous local politician, we will ask not what computers can do for biology, but for what biology can do for computers. And, uh, and of course, we'll go back and forth and, and try to look at what kind of ex- the, this interesting dynamic between uh, the experimental and the computational side. And so how can biology aid algorithm development to, to return the favor and aid biology? But not only algorithm development, to not only inspiring algorithm development, but actually implementing uh, hardware and software uh, in, in uh, biological systems. We'll talk about that. And uh, ranging from molecular computing to cellular computing and then back to uh, inspiring algorithms again. So, slide three, what is it that we're really talking about that computation needs in terms of aid? How do we get, uh, what are the the real issues here? And we've mentioned a couple of times in the course, probably initially when we were talking about dynamic programming and related topics, of how a problem in computer science scales. Typically you'll have one key input size in and then the running time or sometimes the memory has an upper bound, which we've been referring to as the order of some function of that n, where n is the length of, the, of a string or the size of the problem. There are other uh, symbols that are slightly more rarely used. There's a, In addition to the upper bound, there's a lower bound. Uh, sometimes you can get an exact bound or equal bound. Um, and how does this play out when you have specific instances of n. Now, of course, this, when you say that something's on the order of or upper bound of a function of n, uh, you don't always necessarily describe the constants, but to give you a ballpark when you have n ranging from one to a thousand, and the, and the polynomial uh, ranging from linear to quadratic to tenth power, and then the exponential or or um, factorial and you can see that, that for very small n, you can get cases where a polynomial performance computation time can be longer than an exponential computation time. So exponential isn't necessarily bad news, depending on the size of your problem. Uh, but it gets to be bad news very quickly, as n in increases, you quickly get over large n- numbers on the far right-hand side that are uh, computationally intractable with any known computer. So uh, we mentioned computational complexity as one of the various definitions of complexity at the beginning of the course. This is not the one we chose to, to be closest to the definition of, of living complexity, but it's one that's very frequently used in the, in the computer science field. And I just want to introduce a few of the terms here just so you've kind of heard them in this context. Um, we have, and it basically refers to the, to the issues brought up in the previous slide of whether it, takes po- whether it scales by a polynomial, which is generally desirable, or whether it scales um, exponentially or worse. And so we have uh, P are problems that we can solve in polynomial deterministic time. Deterministic is just describes the fact that, that the algorithms will do the same thing time after time, which is typical, the sort of typical computer that we feel comfortable using. And uh, an example of this, of, of of problems in the P class, the dynamic programming, which we've used numerous times. It scales polynomial, and the polynomial just depends on the problem slightly, from squared to sixth power we've seen. NP is uh, has a number of subsets, but overall it means it's non-deterministic polynomial time to get the solutions. The solutions are checkable in polynomial time, but uh, uh, generally felt to, be, to, to, to not be uh, to, um, currently feasible in polynomial time for the, the determination as opposed to checking. An example of this where were actually the inventors of various um, encryption schemes such as RSA the R and the SDA referring to the last names of the authors um, in a certain sense they're banking on the uh, difficulty of, of cracking these codes in, um, in polynomial time. You can, you can use the codes if you know it, you can check it, that is to say, you can, but you can't crack it unless someone comes through a breakthrough on the NP problems. Because if you solve one of them, you can solve um, all of them. And then there's subsets of this. This is a little less uh, critical for today's discussion, but there's NP complete, which uh, an example of which is sort of the traveling salesman can you get through all, of, all the vertices on the, on the trip um, with a mi- mileage below some, some threshold? And an NP-hard version of that same thing is, what's the minimum mileage that you can get? Not just less than X, but, you know, how much less than X? And the worst case scenario is undecidable, where you really, uh, even given an unlimited amount of time and space, <laughs> you can't tell whether it is, and the classic one is the, is the program halting problem, where you don't know whether your program is going to halt, and probably all of you have run into that problem. Um, I'm just being funny. Ah. So, but but I mean it is a real, the program halting problem is a serious uh, mathematical construct. Okay. How, um, how do we deal with this? How do we start thinking about um, ways that we've dealt with it before and ways that biology could change the landscape a little bit. Uh, usually you can, what we do to, when we're faced with an NP-hard problem is uh, cheat in some way or another. You redefine the problem so it's in class P, uh, sometimes sacrificing something. So you might have, uh, if you're interested in tertiary structure, you may redefine it as secondary, and we showed the secondary structure for uh, RNAs. It can be solved with dynamic programming algorithm with an n squared or, or worst n the sixth algorithm. Um, whether that is as precise as the pres- most precise tertiary structure that one could get given you know sort of infinite at exponential time is an open question. Uh, pro- probably not. Um, s- some you could. Uh, if, the pro- if n is small enough, we show that exponential times can be reasonable, um, and so you just do an exhaustive search. Or if you can't do that, then you, pr- then you use some clever heuristic way of pruning things. Um, and that's, in a certain sense, that's what uh, most of the approximations are. So what can biology do? We'll talk about three examples in, uh, today. One is DNA computing. One is genetic algorithms and neural networks. The first one, in a cer- none of these really actually solve the problem. Um, the first one is a way of just obtaining a lot more raw computing power. I'll show you a quote where they say they have solved an NP-complete problem, but it's in the same sense that you can solve any exponential problem by by brute force. That's not really finessing it out of NP into into P. Uh, genetic algorithms and neural networks are definitely heuristics. They're Beautifully inspired by two of the greatest uh, algorithms uh, in the history of life uh, on Earth, and that is evolution and um, complex uh, brain networks. And we'll get and, uh, and so genetic algorithms is based on the adaptation that occurs during evolution and recombination and mutagenesis. And neural network is also about adaptation, but this is on sort of the time scale of uh, learning. So we'll first dedicate ourselves to molecular computing and uh, associated, just kind of put it in the context of nanocomputing in general, and you can see all the issues in computing, not just the, uh, the math module. So all the steps are uh, assembly of, of the requisite hardware. This is some kind of factory operation, typically. Then there's some sort of input module, some hardware and software that's required for getting the data in. Then there's some sort of memory. And then there's a central processor, might have a, uh, math components and output. This is sort of like from our first lecture. Assembly input memory, process, and output. And what we want to do with biology is we want to harvest things uh, from genomics and from just biological research in general, to use to design, better computers, either in silico or in, in a biological, biochemical sense, and then harness evolution either to make devices or, or as part of algorithm development. Um, you know, we have a, a different, different people have different opinions about how much longer uh, Moore's Law, the, the scaling for um, large-scale integrated circuits, or uh files version that goes back to 1900 about a doubling every 2 years of um, the ability to uh calculate calculations per second per $1000 there might be another decade left in 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 the silicon uh large scale integrated circuit that's what some people say or maybe more maybe less um, so there're three real options here for uh uh That next step, electronic uh, nanocomputing, optical nanocomputing, molecular nanocomputing, and you could add to this quantum computing for maybe four different options for beating Moore's law or extending Moore's law, depending on how you look at it. So let's just walk through them quickly one at a time. Optical computing you can think of as already here in a sense in that our uh, optical fiber networks have very fast switches that are required Um, for uh, a good deal of our fastest internet. Uh, And there there are various demonstrations of where you can do optical computing um, for many of the tasks, not just the um, data transfer. And uh, and just like many other things, there's a desire to shrink this down for uh, cost of manufacturing and quality and so forth. Uh, The advantages of the optical over um, uh, electronic, typical computers, is that they are, they, uh, for a given set of operations, there's the general sentiment that it might be lower heat generation. Um, it, it goes at the speed of light um, rather than the slightly lower than speed of light that typically comes into uh, actual implementations of electronic circuits. And there, here's two examples taken from the literature of getting nat- natural sort of self-assembly just as we've seen in many biological systems, we get self-assembly of membranes, self-assembly of uh, multi-protein complexes. Here you have, you want to make particular kind, a of size of uh, 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 optical uh, particles that have the right uh, refractive index and spacing and shape and so forth. And you can use self-assembly here uh, for that sort of thing. That's, this is, these are examples of where we're getting sort of in a nanometer range here. This is a five-micron <coughs> scale object here. Um, I've chosen this particular example. There are a number of uh, examples of, of, of electronic nanocomputing where the electronics is getting down to the sort of size of, of molecules. Here, the molecule chosen is a polymer of carbon, not a hydrocarbon, but carbon, it's like the buckyballs, which is carbon-60, or graphite, rolled up into tubes. These nanotubes can be used as transistor-like elements in very tiny circuits. Um, this, is, this is just a schematic. This isn't actually a micrograph, right? And, uh, and here are four circuits that kind of reflect what you might, that might be your first four projects in a, an introductory electronics course, um, ignoring the fact that you might not use nanotubes but you you would uh, would have voltage in and voltage out. In other words, uh, this is a transistor-like circuit or an inverter-like circuit in the uh, upper left-hand corner, of slide 10. And uh, the nanotube here is in the middle in in, uh, series with uh, a resistor going from high voltage to the ground at the lower part. And the voltage in um, essentially modulates the voltage out in the nonlinear curve. And you can see this highly cooperative curve, just like the ones that we've been talking about in a number of other biological and uh, physical systems. Uh, the upper right, you have a NOR gate. Almost every circuit can be made by combination, simply by uh, not-ORs. So this is, a, this is an inverter plus a, an OR, and so you can see that they they're now have two inputs uh, on the left and right, in one and 2 and they can have states 11, 10, 01, 00 going from left to right. And you can see only the in, when they're both zero does the whole circuit down, go output go down to zero or low voltage for output. So input, there are three possible input combinations, and, and the last one gives low. And this is all done. This is all done with these kind of molecular scale nano uh, tubes. Uh, here's a RAM It fires two nanotubes in order to, to store where it's either where you flip it from from open to flip it from uh, low to to high. In the last example in the lower right, you now need three nanotubes. You see we worked our way up in complexity from one to two to three. And you need three in order to get a ring oscillator I mean, that's the way you would think about, most easily think about it, where you have the first one's output uh, uh, affecting the second one, the second one affecting the third, and the third one looping back to the first. And the result of this is you get a a series of uh, peaks and troughs here, which you use for synchronizing circuits or generating other useful uh, sinusoidal processes. Now that's uh, uh, one example of so of optical electronic. Molecular includes a number of different possibilities, including DNA, which is what we'll focus on, DNA computing. And this was started by uh, a person, a physicist, famous for thinking out of the box quite a bit, uh, Feynman in 1959 when he was still fairly young, uh, gave a talk entitled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And by that he meant that we can, just as we can machine and manufacture, uh, objects, uh, under, uh, you know, fairly automated fashion, we should be able to scale that down to, to the point where we're manipulating individual atoms. And he couldn't think of any physics Reason uh, such as the uncertainty principle or anything like that that would prevent one from doing that, manipulating individual atoms. And many years later now he's been proven right in that we are doing that, albeit not in, a, in any really high production method. Uh, Drexler in his thesis and subsequently has championed, this uh, is probably the right word, uh, this sort of notion in and in given it the name nanotechnology and nanosystems, and, and really fleshed out some of the things that one might be able to do if you had a much uh, higher throughput way of dealing with manufacturing at atomic scale. However, even he did not really connect all the dots between where we are now and where we and how we get to the very first uh, nanoassemblers and nanotechnology. Um, since then, there's been kind of a renaissance of interest in this. Um, with the recognition that biological systems actually are are sort of naturally doing nanotech nanotech scale atomic manipulations. And uh, you've seen a few examples of that in this course. Uh, Also, you know, uh, but the particular instance that we'll use as a jumping off point um, for discussion of all the steps that could be where biology and molecular uh, mining could give us uh, new tools, whether it's from uh, assembly, uh, input, memory, computation, output. We'll start with uh, uh, Lynn Adleman's pace-changing paper in 1994. This this is the A of the RSA that that, uh, that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Um, uh, he was obviously a, a uh, hardcore, and is, uh, algorithmics expert and decided in 1994 to, um, to actually do a paper that re- required not only algorithmics but a huge change in the way you implemented the algorithmics and then actually to go into, the lab into a biochemical laboratory which he was not uh, previously uh, trained and to, to author a single-author paper that included such things as PCR. That was in 1994. There was no literature on the subject of DNA com- computers before that. A mere six years later, there were 520 references on the subject, so he obviously hit some kind of nerve. The uh, first few years of that after that were, were mainly theoretical, but I'll show you some examples. But his paper was, was ex- had an experimental component and some others that I'll show you. Um, since this course is really about that interface, constantly checking the theory with reality, um, those are the ones that I'll emphasize here. So the question that he asked in 1994, and is still fresh today, is, is there a Hamiltonian path through all the nodes in a network? So we've been talking about interesting biological networks, but here, you know, just in any network where the black nodes are connected by directed uh, edges, this directed graph, you want to go from the start S to the terminus T from 1 to 6, obeying the arrows and going through every point once. Uh, How do you do this? And how do you do it in DNA? So an example of one here is going from S to 3 to 5 to 2 to 4 to to T. Okay, so the way you do it, first uh, in broad strokes, you encode the graph both the nodes, black spots, and the edges into single-stranded DNA sequences. Then you create all possible paths um, as by using overlapping sequences to indicate which node is connected to which uh, other node um, by, wh- by an edge in which direction. So you can actually have directionality just because you know DNA has directionality. And you use DNA hybridization now to do that step. Now the first step is linear encoding the graph is linear with the number of points in the graph the number of places in the Hamiltonian path. Uh, The second step is not something, and and that you would do by having your computer program a DNA synthesizer, which is an automated machine that we've described uh, a couple times. But the second step is 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 out of your hands. This is something that's uh, that 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 happens automatically when you put DNA in the solution. If you design these sequences carefully so they don't cross hybridize very much, then the only way they can assemble is the way you want it. And then, you then finally you determine whether the solution exists, and this is something which is almost constant in, in uh, complexity. So the entire thing scales very gracefully. Uh, instead of scaling uh, exponentially as the Hamiltonian path problem normally would, this gives the appearance of, of scaling um, linearly in time, which is really one of the best-case scenarios for polynomial time, and certainly better than exponential. So how do we actually do that? that? was broad strokes. This is a more detailed view, and you can see how this really seems like it's going to work. You have uh, each of the nodes encoded by sequences, uh, let's say red and tan here on the top left of slide 14, and you have, if you want to connect node 3 with node 4, so that, that you take the right hand end, the 3' prime end, which is sort of greenish tan, and you connect it now to the other end of, uh, that is to say, the 5' prime end of node 4, just below it, which is blue. So now you have this hybrid, um, which is ordered, so it has so it's an arrow going from 3 to 4, and, uh, and that edge has this particular sequence going from 5' prime to 3'. prime. Now, in practice, you want the edges to be complementary, not identical to the nodes. And so all the nodes are actually represented as reverse sequences um, in the lower left-hand part of, uh, of slide 14. And so represent all the edges that connect nodes by the in this directional manner. And then um, an example of of how you would connect three nodes, three to four to five, by two connecting directional edges, three, four, four, five. Is shown here, all the nodes are in the reverse complements, um, and all the edges are in the forward uh, direction, as arbitrarily defined here. And you can see how these, these stitch these together, and you make firm connections that are unambiguous, non- non-cross-reacting, and have a direct directionality. Now that, you're starting to get the idea that now we can encode this in DNA, but how are we going to actually do the computation, and how are we going to find out who the winner is? So what what is done, remember we want to create all the paths and then ask whether any of them go through all the points and then do any of them go through all the points exactly once. So the first thing is to create all the paths from start to terminus. And by, and by just throwing in this mixture of all the, all the edges and all the nodes, you will create, in principle, all the paths. Now you want to, right, you will go from the, prefix of one into the suffix of the other in the same way that illustrated on the previous slide. Um, And here are some examples of some of the paths. Some are very short. This only goes through four. the one, two, four, six, uh, only goes through four of the nodes. That's not all six of them. The bottom one goes through too many nodes, and and some of them it's going through repetitively. Um, But you get the idea is that you can define the path in terms of all these edges and the reverse complements, which represent the nodes. But here's the actual algorithm as encoded in DNA, and implemented by practical um, methods that a, a computer scientist can do without too much help, at least not enough help that required for authorship So you encode, we've already encoded the graph in the DNA sequences, and this is done by automated oligonucleotide synthesis. You create all the tasks from S to T by PCR amplifying from the S end of the oligo to the T end. So that means the mere fact that they PCR amplify means they must contain node 1 and 6, the start and terminus. So that's good. Now you want to get the ones that visit every node. So by serial hybridization, you can have you can have nodes 2, 3, 4, and 5 immobilized, and you bind the PCR products to it, and then you elute from 2, and then you, in series you bind it to 3, elute from 3, bind it to 4, elute to 4 or 5. So now you know it's has one and six because that's the PCR primers. It has two, three, four, and five because it bound to them in series by hybridization. Then, but that you could get some of those long uh, paths that went through multiple nodes multiple times. If you wanted to have exactly n nodes, then what you do is some sort of electrophoretic sizing. And uh, and, and here, if you have a, cal- a calibration curve, as shown in the bottom of slide sixteen, we have known DNA size markers, and known PCR products going, um, uh, showing you have one of these DNA um, nodes, two, three, all the way up to six. And if you find a solution that has all these properties, PCRs, does serial hybridization to all the nodes, and is the right length, such as the one uh, in column six, then you know you've got a solution. And that was Lynn Edelman's argument that he had DNA computing working. Six years later, we now have, or as of six years later, there are uh, now uh, over 500 examples of this. I'll show you uh, this example as both as an introduction to the satisfiability problem, and also as uh, showing that you can do RNA computing and uh, and that you can encode 2 dimensional objects and it illustrates a number of things the problem here is a chess problem very simple chess board it's not eight by eight but three by three and it's, and the, and you've got an you got an artificial number of knights here and you those of you who know chess know that these knights can can attack in a curious uh, combination of straight and diagonal and it doesn't really matter the point is that this th- these are there are a variety of arrangements of, of any number of knights such that none of them can attack each other and they're all kind of at peace here. And the, the object of this algorithm is to find those combinations. And and, here's, uh, and you do it by cloning. So That was something that uh, was not in the previous example. By cloning, you could find each of the solutions and you de- then determine what is present in cysts along that clone. It's kind of like haplotyping or, or splice form uh, analysis. You can really only analyze these things by looking at, a single, at the product of a single molecule, and that's what cloning is about, is looking at amplifying that single molecule up to the point where you can analyze it. So that's one thing that's new. The other thing that's new is you start with, the, with an RNA. In order that you can use this powerful uh, method, this enzyme called RNAsh, which, which has the property that when you bind a DNA oligonucleotide to, a, to an RNA, and they're complementary, rna will destroy the RNA at, uh, at, at that point, at the point of hybridization. So it's a way of eliminating an entire molecule uh, if it happens to have a particular sequence in it. And so one of the ways that you can uh, ask logical questions about each molecule in a large complex mixture of molecules is using this rna elimination. And in a way, it's a way of, of, having, of designing an infinite number of restriction enzymes. The, the RNA plus oligo, uh, DNA oligonucleotide provides, in a certain sense, a, a custom restriction enzyme. In any case, the other thing that's unusual here is the idea of using split and pool oligonucleotide synthesis. We introduced this in the, in the lecture where we, had, uh, we were introducing drug-protein uh, um, interaction and ways of synthesizing drugs and, and, and other molecules by pool synthesis. And the idea behind split pool synthesis in this case is that uh, e- for each of the each of the squares in this three by three matrix can have two states: either it has a knight or it doesn't. Each of those two states you can consider a zero or one. You can represent them as two different sequences, uh, you know, sequence A or sequence A prime, representing presence or absence of something. And so you basically you have two to the uh, you have 9 squares, and so you have 2 to the ninth different possibilities. And so down below, uh, they synthesized uh, a set of polymers where you have every possible binary state for this uh, 3 by 3 grid. And that's done by, you're synthesizing along, and you come to where you're going to synthesize either A or A prime. You split it, half of this pool gets A, half of it gets sequence A prime, Pull them back together, half gets B, half gets B prime, them and split them in C and C prime <coughs> all the way out. Uh, you really only need nine of these. They did 10 for some reason or other, but the point is to get 2 to the ninth power, um, you need nine of these. And then, as you can, uh, then you can read them out electrophoretically just as the electrophoretic readout gave a sizing in the, in the, in the first DNA computing. You can use it to get the sizes of these. And you can see, you can read out this solution. Here's two solutions, B, E, F, H, referring to the squares on the 3x3 grid, and E, F, C, these are both solutions. And B, E, F, H, um, the way of of reading this off this combinatorial synthesis from the bottom is you've got A through I as the possible bit binary signatures, and then you have uh, two columns, either the zero column or the one, the two states, the two sequences. And as you PCR from the N tag, uh, out to each of these tags, A or A prime, B or B prime, and so forth, then you get, these are all, uh, you'll get this graduated series, it'll tell you you've got a little, of, you've, got, you've got A is in the zero state, B is in the one state, uh, C and D are in the zero state, uh, E is in the one state, so forth. And so I've circled B being in the one state, showing that there's an I in that position, in position B. And you can go through the same thing for the other solutions, um, each of these just Developed as a clone, and there's an and the neat thing about all these problems is they have multiple representations. You can represent them in DNA, you can represent them in, in uh, data, you can represent them as a Boolean logical set of operations where these things represent ands and ors um, at the bottom of the slide, and so on. And you will see that in in the last in the last uh, examples where I just kind of breeze through um, uh, that where that that uh, set of logical operations is probably one of the favorite uh, points of attack for DNA computing uh, still today. So what are the problems and the advantages? The problems are that, yes, it is polynomial time. In fact, it's close to linear time with a number of inputs in in terms of synthesis needs. Uh, you, you know, your computer tells the synthesizer what to make, and then uh, enzymes will, uh, or hybridization, will do will do this, highly parallel reaction, um, independent of, the, of N, so that basically constant time. So it's linear time for synthesis, constant time for the computing, and constant time for the um, getting the answer read out. But you have uh, exponential volumes. For example, a 100-node graph, we've been talking about the various graph solutions, might be 10 to the 30th molecules. And if any of you have, have uh, ever tried to synthesize a mole or 10 to the 24th molecules, you realize it would would, uh, bankrupt our planet to make the 30th molecules. So, in addition, the elementary steps are slow. Okay, it's highly parallel. You know, you can imagine having uh, uh, trillions of molecules computing in parallel, but the elementary steps of hybridization and, and DNA polymerase or RNA stage and so forth, typically are in the millihertz range, that is to say, you know, it might take a thousand seconds rather than gigahertz, which would be a billionth of a second. So there might there might be a 10 to the 12th uh, gap in rate of, of executing the commands, but there's more than, the hope is, that there's more than a 10 to the 12th advantage in parallelism. In addition, sp- experimental errors um, mustn't be swept under the rug. You've got issues with mismatch. There's a limit that just how cleverly you can design all these sequences as, as the get graph gets bigger, you need to have more and more sequences involved and that, that it means that you're going to get more and more cross-hybridization and complete cleavage and so forth. There are, when, I, when this slide 18 says non-reusable, there are reusable forms and we'll get to those in just a minute. So those are the disadvantages. What are the promises or the possible advantages? High parallelism could be much more than the 10 to the 12 fold loss in speed. Uh, when, when computer hardware and uh, people dream of the next generation of computers, they hope to get away from the current record, which is around 10 to the ninth operations per joule uh, for conventional computers. Maybe that's not a record, but it's conventional computers. Um, Closer to the 34 times 10 of the 19th operations per joule, that you should be able to squeak out near the thermodynamic limit. And as it turns out, uh, many DNA enzymes such as DNA polymerase are already within a factor of 10 of that goal, while conventional computers are off by um, 10 factors of 10 or more. Uh, if one can, quote, solve, or uh, one NP-complete solve problem, you can get many. And... Uh, you know, they're, they're the improvements that we'll just kind of briefly talk about that, are, that are keep people excited about this are that uh, this is a natural way of talking to biological problems. If there are biological problems you can, uh, uh, it may be a smaller step to get to DNA computing and there are faster readout methods just as there are faster and faster um, computational methods. And natural selection, evolution, is something that you can use on DNA computers, which so far has not been extremely powerful in uh, conventional computers, (coughs) although we will talk about genetic algorithms shortly. So one way of getting reuse is to have a so-called sticker-based model or something where you're basically just using uh, hybridization properties without uh, being destructive. Um, And and here's uh, an example, I'm not gonna uh, walk through it too much, I should point out the all in here includes Adelman again, and uh, and uh, I'll have one more example of his work in just a just a moment here. But there 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 examples now of of work trying to consider seriously the amount the volumes of DNA that are needed and ways of dealing with fault tolerance or or, or error reduction algorithms where you actually go through and uh, Consciously say, okay, if we had an error here, how would we uh, compensate for it? How would we dedicate a little more, a few more bits uh, to uh, take the next step? So, just like in the, the Knights test problem that we had a little bit before, the idea of using ANDs and ORs of uh, Boolean variables, these Xs in slide 21, which can have two states, 0 or 1 similar to the Boolean variables that we run across from time to time in genetic models. Um, And you can have clauses, which are basically um, logical operations on the set of Boolean variables, where you have um, nots and ors and ands. And this kind of problem is a very general problem, a very interesting one, and uh, it has been tackled just in very analogous ways to the ways we've been talking about the previous ones. Um, where you encode the graph in DNA sequences, thereby creating all the paths by hybridization or something like that, and then um, and then you read it out uh, with uh, with um, PCR and um, and solid phase. And you can say, you see, here's a quote where they say, "Here we solve an NP-complete problem." And they, they have indeed solved one, but you know, they haven't, they haven't really turned it into a, a, a polynomial time problem. They simply brute forced it out. And then this is the most recent one, just it came out in science. Again, Len Adelman on it. And now up to 20 variables in a 3 stat problem. Okay, so that's all about computing. It may not, since DNA is relatively slow at computing uh, per step, highly parallel, It may not be the best of the various steps in computing assembly, input, memory, computation, and output. So we'll explore some of the other ones, in particular assembly. To a certain extent, assembling computers is slow, and so it's something where um, molecular assembly might have some advantages. Now this particular example, I'm, I'm going to emphasize the assembly aspect of it, but you can think of this as a way of mapping these authors have mapped, um, assembly of an actual two-dimensional tiling onto uh, an, an abstract but important and powerful computer science concept, which is the general Turing machine, a machine, a kind of a tape-like structure that can compute do any kind of general uh, computing deterministic computing. And uh, so they mapped a, a kind of a physical tiling as you might have a, a you know periodic, or a periodic mosaic of tiles um, onto this computing machine, and onto this kind of uh, logical operation XOR on a string of binary bits, just as we had in the previous couple of slides on the, on the 3SAT problem. I'm going to emphasize the geometric, physical version of it because we're trying to make a transition now in this paper, which combines the DNA computing with the DNA assembly. Now up at we have uh, three more or less equivalent ways of representing the same sort of sequences. Now, these are called triple crossovers because you can see, and let's take a look at, uh, say, Y2 here, in, right in the middle of the slide. Uh, you can see that there are these uh, multiple crossovers where you have a kind of a recombination event where you've got two double-stranded DNA molecules that are exchanging a strand. And this is not a natural rec- homologous recombination event, and since they're non-homologous, and this thing is kind of trapped in this crossover. And the crossover, when you have a, multiple crossovers, you can make a piece of DNA that now has more than just two ends. You can have multiple sticky ends. You can have, say in this case, in the upper part, you can see four different ends um, with um, uh, one, two, three, uh, four crossover strands here. And each of these um, you can see on the far right a, a 5 base 3 prime overhang and a 7 base 5 prime overhang and some flush ends on the far left. And so each of these things has uh, ability to stick, stick to other uh, tiling elements. And you can see that you can put together a, a, a two-dimensional uh, structure um, which can be as intricate as a mosaic. It does not have to repeat itself or it can repeat itself if you want to use um, um, you know, visual uh, tools such as Fourier transforms to look at a repeating structure. And you can see you can, you can engineer in restriction sites to help you analyze the structure on, on a gel-based assay on the far left. Uh, we've seen enough gel based assays tonight already. I won't be we're not going to walk you through it. But you can see that there's, even though this is not straight DNA as the previous uh, two or three examples were, this is a much more complicated branch structure. Um, nevertheless, you can turn it into a linear readout with electrophoretic sizes. But you can also look at it as a, a truly uh, two or three dimensional object here. Here we use atomic. They use atomic force microscopy, um, where a, a probe with a single atom at its tip um, is to, responding to to the force um, that allows that, that as you touch an object, um, the the feedback in the system with a uh, scanning tunneling microscope usually as a part of the feedback. Um, tells you that you've just touched the surface and you bound to back off a little bit and then you scan along and touch just just uh, profiling the surface. And so here with two different tiling methods, this is more a repetitive rather than an aperiodic tiling. You can see that these little pink uh, protrusions, you can engineer into the tile not just the two-dimensional stickiness, sticky tags, but a, a third dimension, which is a bump, which might be a um, a stem loop, as we've seen in other secondary structures, is engineered into this DNA. So now that these bumps will stick up and be easy targets for the atomic force microscope, and here you have a bump every, every second uh, tile, and that's on the left, and on the right of slide 27, you have a more complicated tiling where you have four different types of tiles and a bump every fourth one. And so you expect, you can calculate from the... the, the uh, Watson-Crick model for DNA, or more advanced models of DNA, even though this is a, uh, a, a lattice of uh, branch structures, you can calculate it should be about 33 nanometers between the bumps, and that's what's observed, and 65 nanometers is calculated and observed. You can see the, the bigger lattice spacing in these uh, admittedly somewhat fuzzy atomic force micrographs. Um, but you can see you get something an experimental confirmation of the two-dimensional structures here. Now this is a self-assembly nanofabrication and, and to some extent it is inspired by and, is, and can be combined with microfabrication. This is something where you basically use optics, you go to the limit of current uh, optical manufacturing as a microfabrication where it's typically hard to get below say a hundred nanometers or so in feature size, here you can see this is, uh, and this is the sort of microfabrication used to make your uh, computer chips. But it's, uh, in this case, it's used to actually make moving parts, parts that move relative to one another, and that and that motion um, actually has useful um, uh, applications. The first such useful application that I'm aware. Um, is putting these things into airbag sensors, and the idea is that when you're driving your large automobile and run into a even larger object, um, you suddenly decelerate, either by brakes or some other method, and uh, when you do, uh, this little bitty device, uh, ins- a sensor inside your somewhere in your car, uh, will shift one of its parts by at least 0.2 angstroms, meaning a tenth of an atomic diameter. That doesn't seem like very much, and it isn't. It only causes 100 femtofarads, that means 10 to the minus 13th farad capacitance change, but that's quite enough to signal a uh, that a collision has occurred or will occur, and uh, With a very low false positive rate, those of you who have driven large automobiles know how infrequently the airbag opens up accidentally. (laughs) Um, But when it does deflect by 0.2 angstroms, then it does open up the airbag. Okay, So this is a a payoff of microfabrication. But now we want to combine the sort of nano systems we saw in the DNA computers and in the tiling with microfabrication. And I pick this as just one of the very few examples where microfab meets nanofabrication, and we'll call it a nanoelectromechanical system. And here, so you've got the uh, microfabrication of both the posts upon which these things stand, which is sort of these nickel columns of, of, of uh, you know 80 nanometers, and the little uh, bars, metal bars, uh, which can be a sort of the micron range. Um, and, that, and you can see them visualized in the left hand photograph where you have these bars at regular spacings. And uh, if you look at this publication or the, the, the webs that go along with it, these little bars will spin around. And what they're spinning on is not a microfabricated motor, but it is a nanobiotech motor, which, and actually it's a, it's a protein that most people didn't think of as a motor uh, when it was first discovered. It is the, the protein present in almost all uh, organisms that is responsible for ATP generation. Usually, you think of this as making ATP for other motor, for motors to use, but this actually, since it is capable of rotary motion, um, does, does move this one micron bar around uh, at the, the rate that you would expect um, for, uh, for this sort of nano uh, machine to be generating torque. Okay, so that's, uh, so we're now, we've talked about assembly. That's an example of an output device, what sort of input devices we have that will work at the single molecule level. Um, Here is, uh, there are many examples. We mentioned a few of them uh, in the sequencing, uh, genotyping lecture where we were talking about single fluorophores. Here you can use another aspect of uh, biology um, which is a self-assembly of membranes to make a very very tight low conductance seal which is only on the order of 2 nanometers thick but it's enough to make a giga-ohm seal, a multi-giga-ohm seal and then you poke a little hole in it with a single molecule of a protein and they're there um, growing ways to do this on inorganic substrates as well. So. When you have a single protein pore, which itself might be a one nanometer opening, it will, it will allow, in the presence of electric field, indicated by these negative and positive uh, charges here, uh, yellow negative and positive ions to go through It's like sodium chloride. And they will go through it about um, uh, uh, up to a, a million ions per second easily. And when you uh, have a larger molecule that's, that's, say, a polyanion in the electric field, it will slowly migrate through this pore. And while it does so, it blocks the rapid movement of the smaller ions, like sodium. Um, and you can record the uh, – it doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily completely block the channel. You can record the uh, rate at which sodium will go through and how it's influenced by the composition of the of the polymer um, going through, and so here's an example of a bacterial protein. Um, this is Miller at al. reference down below. Um, uh, a bacterial uh, toxin, actually from Staphylococcus, um, whose goal in life is not is to is you know is to kill other organisms. Is not uh, to provide a a handy conduit for RNA to go through a cell. But nevertheless, in this, in this experiment, when, it does, when, when a nucleic acid does screw through this, it blocks the, the, uh, the, the little red water molecules and similar sized ions are blocked. And they're blocked in a uh, way um, which is sensitive to the, in the, not only the, the molecule, but parts of the molecule. So you can see here, you've got a molecule with an, uh, poly, a oligo A part and an oligo C part. And you can actually discriminate between these both in terms of the rate at which they go through, um, each of the parts goes through, and the conductance. So if you look down in the lower right hand part, you'll see a 5 picoampere, 10 to the minus 12 ampere, 20 picoampere, and 120 picoampere levels for these individual molecules. And each of these spikes it, uh, is first the, the A30 half and then the C70 half going through. And you can see that the uh, the, uh, the the two different conductance levels that you get reproducibly going through, it's going through in it, typically in one direction first the A, and then the C, and uh, different conductance levels, different rates. And then the 125 milliampere is in between molecules where you're getting the full conductance capability, lots of sodiums going through. And uh, just like with other methods uh, that we've seen before. Um, The use of two dimensions helps get you better statistical resolution. Here the two dimensions are the conductance and the time. um, Time on the vertical axis and conductance on the horizontal axis. And you can see how you can discriminate um, different types of polymers by this method. One molecule at a time. Each of these dots represents a single molecular event. um, So we'll take a... Short break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about um, um, not molecular computing but uh, designing cellular computers and, and revisit some of these same themes. Thanks.